Know your rights, know the law. The Law Report with Michael Matuining Bill. A very good evening to you and welcome to The Law Report. I have quite a special show for you tonight and it follows on what we did last week where, as you will recall, we had uh, Justice Yvonne Mokoro um, right here. And as was last week, uh, you can always watch this show tonight as we broadcasting on the radio. You can also stream live by going to Kaya uh, TV. That's where we're broadcasting this. But of course... There'll be a podcast and there'll be many other things. Before we start our show and before I tell you who I got for you this evening, um, thank you to Mapaseka. She's back again tomorrow. But I have a very special um, uh, woman, once again, a phenomenal woman in law, Mamadoupi Mosala Mulaudzi. She's my guest tonight and, and I don't even know how to introduce you. I don't know whether to introduce you as an attorney, as a DG, a former DG of communications, a former commissioner. You've had such a long uh, spanning career, but perhaps um, for you out there at home, um, um, let's let's for now accept that you're an attorney and you've you fulfill many roles. Let's talk about your life when it started, because I think many of us look at lawyers such as yourself <coughs> who have had so much accomplishment and 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 have had such an impact in in our in our country, and 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 really we don't see the person behind all of the the achievements. Yes. Where did you grow up? Okay, um, yes, thank you very much um, for, for giving me this opportunity to come and speak to you on the show today. And thank you, to, uh, good evening to the listeners out there. Okay, who is Mamudupi Muthala? Mamudupi Muthala, simply put, is the daughter of Peter Muthala and Omaswazi Muthala. My parents were political activists. I was born in exile as a consequence. They were political exiles. They left this, the country when they were very young because they were totally against the apartheid system. They were out of the country under the auspices of the African National Congress. They met in Swaziland. I was born in Swaziland. Interesting, Mamudupi Muthala born in Swaziland, but be that as it may, I was born in Swaziland. Um, my father was a, an academic. Unfortunately, he's late now. My mother is an accountant by profession. And who am I? I think of all the titles, I, li- I like the best is that of an attorney. Yeah. I think I've known that I wanted to be an attorney from as young an age as nine, nine, years, nine, nine years of age. And reason being, my father and I always had a 10-year plan. So I remember when I was nine years old, my father said to me, so what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And I said to him, I want to be a philosopher. <laughs> he looked at me and he said, my child, I know you're a very talkative <laughs> child, but do you think philosophy is the best place for you? Because you'll have to philosophize and live other people's theories out. Yeah. Don't you want to live out your own theory? I said for a minute, yeah, dad, but I think I want to know how human beings work. Then he said to me, no, but the most important thing, don't you think, is you love the finer things in life. Do you think a philosopher on a lecturer's salary would, <laughs> would get the finer things in life? Then at that point, I realized that I needed to do something more interesting. And that's when him and I honed it down straight to law. Right. And I decided at that point I was going to be an attorney. We put the action plan in place. I finished my O-levels at the age of 14, started university so, at so the let's, time. Let's talk, let's talk, for example, when, when people talk exile, uh-huh. uh, you know, there's no place called exile, you know, and Correct. I think it's quite easy to think. <laughs> <laughs> so so you, like you, you, for, for you, it started, it starts, you, you, you exiled and you are uh-huh. now in, uh, in, in, in Swaziland. And yes. until what age are you, are you there? Well, we moved a lot. I mean, we were born in Swaziland. Um, under and the we, you're referring to who? My brothers and I. Okay. I grew up in a family. Okay, I had an elder sister, but unfortunately she died um, when we were in exile. Um, then I, I grew up mostly with my two younger brothers, my mother and my father okay. and I. Well, not two younger brothers, a younger brother and an elder brother. I'm actually in between two boys. Mm-hmm. Um, we lived in Swaziland. Then my father was PI'd for political reasons because at the time the Swazi government was, oppo- was in favor of the apartheid system and they didn't want uh, people who were involved in political activities. My father and my mother were deeply involved in recruiting right. students from South Africa to join the liberation struggle so that we could advance um, the, 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 the rights of political... So pol- what, would they come in and out of South Africa Correct. from Swaziland? They would come in and out of South Africa recruiting young people to join the, the, the liberation struggle, especially young educated people because I think the ANC fully understood that, yes, you would need people who would be in the military, but over and above that, you'd also need young educated people so that when we get our democratic, when we once we become a democratic or independent state, those people could come back and contribute towards the growth of the economy of this country. So my parents were, di- were, were directly involved in that. 
And once obviously that became a problem with the Swazi government, then they asked my father to leave. In fact, they PI'd him out of the country. What's, which what's PI'd? It's, 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 it's a prohibited political activist, meaning that you're no longer allowed because of your political right. activity. Right. So, so, they, so in the intervening period, are you guys sort of having a normal family life where, you know, um, I get that there's the political activity, but they, both your parents have a profession. Are they, are they pursuing that profession, having a normal That's family correct. life? Yes, no, they were having a normal family life. I mean, as a child, other than obviously later on in my childhood, I was no, not aware that there was any real difference. All I knew is we are South African because my father honed that in from an early age, even my mother. I mean, we would go to school and speak in English, but when we came home, my mother, I don't remember as a child, my mother ever speaking to me in English. She spoke to me in vernacular because she wanted us to know our South African roots and our mother tongue because right. my mother's Kosa, so she'd make sure she speaks to us in Kosa when mm -hmm. we get home. So we had a normal family life for that period in time. But after some time, especially once we left Swaziland, okay, maybe I also need to indicate, my father at the time was a teacher at Salesian High School, mm -hmm. and I'm sure you know that a lot of the political activists in Swaziland were at Salesian High School. A lot of political activity from South Africans came from Salesian High School, which was in Manzini. My father worked there a lot with, um, with Uncle Stan, Stan Mabizela, who was also very active in politics and recruiting young people from South Africa to join the, the liberation struggle. Mm. Um, he worked at Silesian, then he also worked at the University of Swaziland, where he was also um, a lecturer there. I'm in conversation uh, with uh, uh, Mamurupi Masala Malaudzi. Uh, she's an attorney and many other things, and we just sort of getting the benefit of understanding her life story. She's, yeah. she's, she's spending the next 50 minutes with you and me, and where we can pretty much sort of get to the, the the woman behind the face that we've we've known for so many years. Yeah. Um, so so now this is now the tenure and, and you, as you said your tenure in as a family in Swaziland and then you you use the word PI and so you PI yes. out of Swaziland. Then obviously my father went well went relocated to Lesotho with my mother and the rest of the family we all moved to Lesotho. Right. We continued to live there as a family. My mother was working as an accountant. In fact, she he worked for um, the great activist attorney Silo Khalaki. Who, um, who's, um, who, who, who was also very active in the struggle. A South African who was living in the Sutu who helped a lot of South Africans when they got there. My mother was working as an accountant in, in his law firm. Mm -hmm. My father was also uh, full-time employed in the Sutu. We stayed there for a number of years. My sister, who was in high what, school... What, what time is this? What sort we are looking at, at the time, it should have been 1980, 81, mm -hmm. somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. 80, 81, 82. Then um, my sister then went off. Um, he was supposed to go to school in Tanzania. Uh, well, to the, to, he was, she was supposed to go to the Soviet Union to study medicine. Right. But she was supposed to go via Tanzania, which is Solomon Matlango Freedom College. So she had to go there, finish off her matric, and then go to the Soviet Union and study medicine. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, she died in a car accident while she was still in transit, meaning on her way to, to, to the Soviet Union, she died in Tanzania. So is this and one of those buried. real accidents or is it No, it had, there's suggestions that it was obviously um, caused by the enemy agents yes. and obviously, and unfortunately because it was actually very sad because they were on a school trip, there should have been about 40 of them. And then the car that they were driving in, it was actually a truck that they were driving in, over, was involved in an accident, it overturned. And my sister's the only one who actually died right. out of all the students. Right. And as a consequence of that, we were really broken as family because we're very close. We're very close knit family. Mm -hmm. And at that time, then um, my parents then felt that you know we couldn't leave her on her own spiritually in in a far off land. That's when we then left Lesotho and went to Tanzania, and we stayed there for a number of years. So, so the move to from Lesotho to Tanzania is influenced exclusively by the death of your sister? It's influenced by the death of my sister to a, to a large extent, but also by, also by the need that my father picked up when we were in Solomon Mahlangu Freedom College because it was a college that was set up under the auspices of the ANC mm -hmm. and it was there to train a lot of young people with regard to the struggle and also create a community away from South Africa whereby we could get a proper education and cultivate young people in preparation for our return to South Africa. And when we were there for my sister's funeral, my father also picked up that there was a short of teachers and being a teacher by profession he felt that there was an added consequence of my sister's uh, death that being that it was drawing him closer to his true calling by leaving South Africa mm. which is that of contributing towards the struggle and the betterment of South Africa of, mm. of South African and South Africans and their youth mm. so that's why 
we then ended up moving to Tanzania. But obviously the issue of my sister's death was also another factor. And, and with all of these moves now, now you're in your third country, mm -hmm. your schooling life, is it affected at all? Look, it is affected. It is quite affected. But um, because we had one huge advantage, my father was an academic. So I didn't only rely on your formal educational system. Right. We would come home and my father would teach us. Homeschooling. Yes, there was a lot yeah. of homeschooling. My father would actually get um, the syllabus for your junior certificate, for your O-levels, for your A-levels. And he would actually actively ensure that we don't lose any, um, we don't lose out on any of our education and uh, any of the core subjects that we're supposed to be doing. Right. That actually obviously helped us quite a lot. As you'll see as I, I speak to our movements, that's how I actually then ended up finishing high school even sh in a shorter space of time than would generally be accepted. Because we then stayed in Tanzania from about 82 to 1984. Mm -hmm. Then we left Tanzania and we moved to, um, to Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. When we're in Zimbabwe, um, what then happened is that when I got to Zimbabwe, at that time, ooh, now I'm giving the true confessions about my age. <laughs> but I'm anyway, sure I can wake up the mathematics. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, a life well lived. Okay, age is never a secret. But anyway, um, at that point, we, le we left Tanzania in 1982. To, uh, we, uh, sorry, 1984. Yeah. We then arrived in Zimbabwe in 1985. Now, the big question for my parents was, do I go and finish off primary school or do I go to high school? I remember my father distinctly saying to my mom, why don't we give her a try? Let her go to high school and let's see how she, she fares in high school. Then my father went, negotiated with the high school that was close to where we live, because in Zimbabwe you attend a high school that's closest to where you live. Um, they, were, they were very uncomfortable about the age, because at the time I was 11 years old. Mm. Um, but they then agreed that I start Form 1 at the age of 11. Thank goodness I aced it in my first term. I came, up the I came out top three in my class. Wow, young then, Sheldon. <laughs> sorry? <laughs> young Sheldon. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think I'm just lucky it's right face and time. <laughs> but be that as it may, um, I then started from one at the age of 11. Yeah. I was great in my first term. The teachers were actually very pleased with me because they, they put me in the lowest stream. Mm -hmm. But by the second term, I was in the highest stream. So that really, that, that, you know, that gave me a whole vote of confidence. Then I thought, okay, I then just, I can I do this. I must say, I would have hated you if you were in my class. <laughs> <laughs> well, life is not a perfect science, eh? <laughs> Win some, lose some. But be that as it may, I continue to work hard. Um, but I must say, throughout high school, a person who was very key with regard to my excelling in school was my mother. Right. My mother's a very soft-spoken person. I was, I was observing how yeah. there's a lot of references to your father and, and for the first time <laughs> the mother comes. No, um, I always say this and my mother's going to kill me for this. I say to her, I don't remember her until I was 10 years old. That's my first recollection of her. No, but being an only daughter, I think all I did was follow my father everywhere he right. went. And then one day I realized that, oh my goodness, I actually look more like her than him. So I need to spend time with her. You need to switch. <laughs> exactly. But be that as it may, um, high school, my mother was very helpful. I mean, we would come home. In exile, it was not a bed of roses. Mm -hmm. I mean, you didn't have lots and lots of money. You didn't have all the comforts that you have. We have here. Yeah. But my parents always emphasize that education is critical. My mother would sit and literally study with me for every single test and exam to make sure that I aced it and I passed. And I must say, I even excelled beyond what my brothers were doing. And I remember actually at some point striking a deal with her that if I pass, then I don't have to cook. I don't have to do any household chores, et cetera, et cetera. And that was the deal. And unfortunately or fortunately, it stuck with me throughout my life because to this day, I can't really cook because I never learned because I got the A's and then I got out of the household chores. But it also helped me a lot in the sense that I actually wrote my first matric exam in, in, in Zimbabwe. In, for O-levels, we used to write in... You'd write early in the year and later in the year. I've just forgotten which months it is. It just slipped my mind. But I actually wrote my first O-level exam in the la latter part of my 13th year. Sure. And I actually, and we were just testing yeah. to see whether I would be able to cope yeah. with the final exam the next year. So I didn't write the five O-levels. I only wrote two O-levels. I wrote English and I wrote English literature. And I actually passed. Wow then I had full confidence that I was going to make it across. Then obviously I, I wrote when I was 14, which was in Form 4, because you write to, unlike in South Africa, we, we used to write our O-levels in Form 4. In Zimbabwe, I wrote my O-levels in Form 4, and I actually passed. But I remember my mother actually coming home very angry with me and saying, 
why didn't you get straight A's? And I thought, <laughs> be grateful I'm I 14. passed. And be grateful <laughs> I passed. But that's the kind of mother I had. She, uh, my, my, my mom is not very talkative, yeah. but she insists on excellence. And, and, and uh, so I'm listening to, to you speak and, 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 and sort of having now at this juncture of your life, as young as you are, 14 years old, already passing your O-levels, <laughs> you exposed to four countries. Correct. At that point, I'm assuming you have... You, you've never been to South Africa. No, I was not born in South Africa. None of my siblings were born in South Africa. And, and, and of course, in South Africa, the climate is different. Racism and apartheid is Correct. at its peak. Correct. Um, um, and, and around the 80s, violence is, is, is at a different peak where Correct. there's black and black violence, there's white and black mm. violence. It's, it's just mm. anarchy, as, as, mm. as, as one can imagine. And then you speak about Zimbabwe, and, I, and, I, and you, you play Zimbabwe around 85 when they would have had independence. Mm. Etc. So you, so 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 I'm I'm sort of getting this picture that you 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 allowed through living in exile to almost not live through um, the 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 torture and the experiences of South Africa. So you were in some way, although the circumstances are not perfect because nothing compares to one's home country, mm-hmm. but you, you you managed to escape apartheid, as it were. Is that a is that a correct view? I don't think so. Um, let me tell you why. There's always that debate. Which one was better, exile or yeah. as, as far as I'm concerned, exile was not a bed of roses. Right. I have not honed in onto the nitty gritties of exile. Yeah. I mean, when we lived in places like Tanzania, there was the reality of living with malaria. Yes. People were dying of malaria. Yes. There was the reality of not having proper nutrition. Because don't forget, we were living on donations. Mm. And if donations didn't come, that means we had to do without a lot of things that were necessities for a child uh, from a nutritional point of view. But most importantly, the fact that you don't have a direct tie to your home, Mm -hmm. that can wreak very severe psychological havoc on a person. And a lot of people in exile lost their minds. Others went through severe depression without medication to deal with it as you have in South Africa. But there was also a serious issue of people not having a true sense of belonging and that can really be a very bad thing and if you look now at people who have been to exile and come back to south africa there's a huge gap that people are failing to 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 fill Mm -hmm. because we never had the grounding of a clear environment where you know where you belong Mm. but secondly if you were born in exile you did not have the luxury to choose. Am I joining the liberation struggle or am I not? Mm. Because even with the whole apartheid system, which was a horrific system, and please don't get me wrong, I'll never, you can never ever downplay what it has done to our country and its people. Mm. But the one thing is people did become doctors who were in state in South Africa. People did become advocates and attorneys and nuclear scientists, irrespective of the apartheid environment. Even other people thrived and became millionaires, even in that bad environment. Mm. And exile did not have that luxury. We were in the struggle. You were born fighting from day one. Mm. And I'll tell you why that this was even more psychologically traumatizing. I'm curious, and I don't want to cut you short, but let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll just finish that that, that line. Mm -hmm. Um, We're back after this. Know your rights. Know the law. The Law Report with Michael Matwining-Bill. Welcome back to The Law Report with me, Michael Matwining-Bill. I'm having a conversation, very interesting uh, conversation, with one of our country's phenomenal women, uh, Mamadoupi Malawudzi. Sorry, that double barrel. Mamadoupi Malawudzi. And uh, we're talking about a life story. We're talking about how she grew up in exile. And before we took a break, um, you, you were still explaining how life was in, in, in exile. Yes, no. Um, what I was just saying is obviously um, exile was not a bed of roses. Um, it has its ups and downs. And as I say, when you're born into exile, you don't have a choice. Yeah. That is the environment you're born into. And what the point I was about to make when we took the break mm. is a very critical one, I think, and many people don't realize that. Because you're in a state of war. You may not have be, we may not have gone into the camps like people who had to go into MK, but as a very young child, you become very conscious of the fact that you're in a state of war. Now, you live with the possibility that the Boers or the apartheid system could send anyone to infiltrate you 
and kill you because that was our reality. And that is what was happening. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So from as early as an, the age of three, your parents warn you, do not give out too much information. For instance, you couldn't have friends home because you never know, knew whether this is a genuine friend or is not a genuine friend. You learned that your interactions with people have to be limited because they can't start knowing too much about the activities that your parents are involved in because that could also pose a health risk, a safety risk not mm. only to yourself but to your family mm. now imagine what that does to you as a child mm. you're no longer a child mm. you become a conscious adult mm. and that puts you in a state of war in the sense that you're always on the alert you're always panicking and i mean we missed the maseru massacre by literally two weeks my so my, sis, my sister's death, to a large extent, even though we are not people who are very superstitious, we think to a large extent it saved us from dying in that Masera massacre. Because had she not died in Tanzania, <coughs> we would have remained. And we would, wow. might have been killed in our sleep like many people were killed in their sleep. Because yeah. we would have been none the wiser. Yes. So two weeks just before the Masera massacre, we left for Tanzania. But it also goes to show you that um, the state of uh, uh, how unsafe it was to be in exile, but we obviously felt that there was the bigger good and O.R. Tambo made it clear that we had to go out and fight and let the no world know what is happening in South Africa because without exiles, people would never have known in the outside world and in the international world may not have known to the extent that they knew what was happening in South Africa. So we mm. were the mouthpiece mm. of many of our brothers and sisters who were suffering in South Africa. Now back to, to, to your career, you're 14 mm. years old and you finish your O-levels. What then happened? I then uh, went and started university. Mm -hmm. I studied at the University of Swaziland. Reason being because I wanted to study in a Roman Dutch system mm -hmm. because you know law is very geographical. Mm -hmm. um, I thought to myself, I will firstly go to University of Swaziland, do my BA law, and then thereafter I'd go to University of Edinburgh because they also ha follow the Ro Roman Dutch system. And right. at the time, University of Swaziland was UPLS, University of Swaziland, Lesotho and Botswana. So they would then obviously take their LLB graduates, I mean their junior degree graduates to do their LLB in, in Edinburgh. Right. But then whilst I was in my, I think it's my, my second or third year, then um, the, st the political changes started happening in South Africa. Then when I finished my junior degree, I should have been 19 because it was four years at that time. Right. I then this is what, BA Law? BA Law. Because uh -huh. when I did an LLB, LLB was not a junior degree. It was a postgraduate degree. Yes. It only, you also know in South Africa, it only became a junior degree a few years ago. I think they made it, they changed it about 2003, But even then, it's still an honors equivalent. Correct, oh, yeah. yes. So you had to have a junior degree in order to do an LLB. So yeah. I did a BA Law, whereby most of my, my junior degree subjects were law. Mm -hmm. And then obviously I did political science and I did um, public administration and sociology. Then when I finished my junior degree at the University of Swaziland, it was the political changes, it was 93. I then came back to South Africa and I did my LLB at WITS. I was actually at WITS at the time when the political changes were starting to happen in 1994. Right. Um, WITS was a very... I just worked out yes. your age, but... <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's, okay. it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, you can Google it and also figure it out. It's no problem. So 1994, I, um, we came back to... Well, my parents came back earlier. They came in 92. I wanted to finish my junior degree in Swaziland. And I was actually living with my uncle um, in Swaziland, my, 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 my mother's brother who helped me who stayed with me um, 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 when I was in Swaziland and helped me through to get, um, to get into University of Swaziland, Sipo Lodlo. Mm -hmm. He's my mother's elder brother. I stayed with him there and then I came to South Africa. Then 1994, I did my and LLB. And you now back here studying at Varsity? Are your parents back as well? Yes, they came back earlier. Yes. They came back. In fact, my entire family came back in 1992, 93. Wow. I'm the one who stayed in... Who, who then started commuting back and forth until I finished my junior degree in right. Swaziland. Then 94, I come back. I start my LLB at WITS. Now, now, now you, you then have had a completely different life experience uh, uh, if you take SYDN, as it's now called, mm -hmm. to South Africa. Yes. And your experience is just growing up, mm -hmm. integrating back into South Africa. Or for you, it's not back. It's actually integrating for the very Correct. first time. Correct. Was that something that was it uh, with any difficulty or was there some kind of community feel from the from from the moment you started Ooh, it was not a walk in the park yeah you know when we were in exile we lived with this ideal south africa was the ultimate it was our utopia it uh -huh. was going to be the country of milk and honey 
where people would love us. We would find this brotherhood we'd never had or sisterhood. We would be welcomed with open arms and people would just fully understand us. And for a change, we would not be foreigners. Because don't forget, when you're in exile, you're always an outsider. You're not... A South, you're a South African, you're not a Zimbabwean, you're not a Tanzanian, you're not Swazi, you're not Sutu. So I thought, finally I come home and people will really get me and I'm home and it's the land where, it's the land of opportunity. Right. Yeah, we had a serious cultural shock. First of all, your relatives do not understand you. Yes. There's a bit of a language barrier. My right, advantage. So you, I'm, I'm assuming now you would have been exposed exposed to Shona and Debele, Swati, and Swahili, Swahili. Exactly, exactly. But as I said, the advantage we had is our parents spoke to us in vernacular at home. Right. So we may not have been fluent, but we at least knew bits and pieces. But now the difficulty comes in in that my mother's Mbuni speaking, so I sp- spent a lot of time listening to Kosa and Isizul. My father is Bedi. But my father really was more of an intellectual. He spoke more English to us than Sibedi. Mm. So you come back to South Africa. You go to your father's home village in Sikukuni. You cannot speak to your great-grandmother because mm. she speaks deep Sibedi. She doesn't speak English. Mm. And it shocks you because you look at these people. They look exactly like you. Yeah. But why can't I interact with them? Yeah. And I mean, we have this characteristic nose. The Musalas, especially my father's family, we have this, this nose with the huge, huge nostrils. So I get that everyone, finally I meet people who have the same nose as me. My whole life I've never found people like that. And then we cannot communicate. But for me, at least it was a bit better because when we're in Lesotho, I had some Sotho friends and I picked up bits and pieces of Sotho. So Sipedi is Sotho, not so difficult, different. Yeah. But still, the rural Sipedi is very different. But for my younger brother, I don't know how he missed it in the whole system. He could not speak any African language. And I don't know how we didn't pick it up until we came back home that this boy's just been speaking English his whole life. Right. But be that as it may, he can't um, fit in. But then even in the urban context, you go to a place like Witz. You come with your broad-minded, open-minded approach. People are polarized. They're still, uh, she's black, she's white. And you're sitting there and thinking, but I went to school with people who look like both of you. What's the problem? And when I was in high school, a lot of my friends were Indian Muslim girls because I went to a girls-only school. I get to Vits, I'm speaking to the Indian girls, but I'm not getting the feedback that I'm accustomed to getting. Mm. Then it hits me that people have been living in a very polarized society. And 1994 elections and the release of Mandela is not going to do the trick. It's going to take a lot of time and socialization. Then a strong sense of consciousness that had been inculcated in me over the years in exile came to the fore. Right. I ended up with a very strong sense of self. And I realized that if I do not assert myself and state my claim and space, people walk all over you. And being black and female was even worse. Because even when you sat in classes at Vince, you would have to say a thing so emphatically for a lecturer to take it on board. Hmm. And I also found that even after I left Vince during my articles, my white colleagues would say exactly the same thing I'm saying. But if it's a white male colleague, it's heard differently from when I put it across. Then that's when I started seeing the dynamics so, so, of racism. So now, this is now your sort of, you know, preeminently into your youth, varsity, work life now. And work life starts. So, so, yes. so before we, we get into the work life, because I think, mm-hmm. I think it's very important because I think it's, you know, your first work experience getting into yet a different culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you do your LLB adverts and, and, and then you start your articles. Correct. Is that the sequence? Yes. Yeah. Um, then I went and I did my articles. I did them at a firm called Denise Rates. I think at the time it was one of the big two. Um, now, now it's Norton called Norton Rose. Rose. Yes, yeah. now called Norton Rose. I remember one of the first few black, um, in, not interns, candidate attorneys that yeah. they took in. Um, I remember there was a black, an African lady, she was in Cape Town, in the Cape Town office. In the Johannesburg office, I believe there was myself and two other African ladies that were taken, on, taken in at the same time. Um, we, look, it, it was really a difficult transition. Mm-hmm. I found the environment to be very conservative, very, very conservative. 
for the first time I understood what a boys club is and you are put under pressure to conform mm -hmm. to a cultural identity that you could never understand firstly you're not male but there's also this culture that's that's there that's an unspoken culture and you're expected to conform to it mm -hmm. and you're black and you're female actually what ends up happening you actually find yourself being drawn more to the black administrative staff because to a large extent they will come and talk to you and engage with you and then you think to yourself okay there's a kinness here because we speak the same language at least I understand but by the same token you're a professional they're not and your professional colleagues do not take the time to bother to understand you their attitude is, is either you get to the program or you get out and, and and you know I suppose it's it's often a very difficult thing um, to talk about and to explain what one means when one is talking about a boys club it's very difficult to to explain what one means when 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 there's sort of because you know sometimes race does not present itself in the fashion that it presented itself correct uh, uh, as we can see the the, the you know the trending of Adam, whatever his surname is, mm. um, where that's overt and, mm. and a lot of um, racism and sexism and uh, boys club, as it were. Or, you know, in your case, was it overt or was it sort of more? Okay, I had an instance where it was overt, mm -hmm. but before I go to that, if I can just for a minute, mm. the issue of the boys club, I'll give you an example. What happens is after a working day. Everybody goes and gathers for, for drinks. Mm -hmm. You have to go because if you don't, then you're seen as if you're not a team player. Yeah. But the topics at those drinks, things that will be discussed is things like rugby. Yeah. Some things that are discussed are actually, they border on racism. Because what they'll do is they'll laugh at some old lady who cleans the offices, talk about her body shape, laugh at her. And you think, but that's the shape of an African woman. What's odd about it? Yeah. You know, those kinds of things that are... That, are insensitive yeah and then after some time you tell yourself but this is not the conversation for me I cannot stand there and watch people laugh because somebody is poor and cannot afford to have a better lifestyle and by the way their poverty is caused is as a consequence of apartheid yeah. no one wakes up and says I want to be poor Correct. but circumstances put you there but you're expected to have the to agree with them under the auspices that that's a middle-class attitude that is not a middle-class attitude that has elements of chauvinism because why should we discuss rugby? Why can't we discuss tennis? Why can't we dis discuss playing, um, uh, what you call it, chess for, for heaven's mm. sake? Mm. Why does it have to be a sport that culturally and institutionally at the time, not, now obviously things have changed a lot now, but at the time was, was associated with a certain cultural group. Yeah. So that's the, the kind of thing that I'm talking about. And you feel you can't fit into that kind of conversation. But now getting with to issues like overt racism, Yes. Um, I think my day of reckoning came one day when one of the directors took me into a meeting. When we got to that meeting, um, everybody spoke Afrikaans. I'm the child of an exile. I've never heard Afrikaans. I don't know Afrikaans. He knows I don't understand Afrikaans. After the meeting, he comes back and says, I hope you took notes. And I said, but how could I take notes? I didn't understand a word that was being said. Mm. Then he said to me, but how can you not know Afrikaans? And I said, but I told you, I do not know Afrikaans. And when I was interviewed, I made it clear. Then I asked him, but do you speak Zulu? Mm. That's a South African language. He got so upset. And I think in his entire life, he had never been challenged, especially by a black female in that sense. Mm. And I, I think the writing was on the wall after that encounter, that this was not the place I needed to be. And once my articles were done, I had to leave. And they, were, they didn't shed any tears when I left. So it was a mutual <laughs> parting and we went our separate ways. But I felt that that kind of environment was going to stifle my growth. And I believe even my parents, when I went home and I told them about the incident, my parents were quite emphatic that do not change who you are. Yeah. Because once you become a conformist, they've killed the fundamental part of you, which is what defines you as a person. I'm in conversation uh, with Mamrupi Masala Malaudzi. And we're just talking about a live story and we're doing this... Uh, uh, in commemoration of Women's Month because it wasn't just a day, it's a whole month where we want to be um, talking to women and getting to understand um, what it's like to be women, a woman in South Africa, but also a great woman in South Africa because I think our hope um, is that we create a space within South Africa where 
they can be more great women such mm -hmm. as yourself and 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 and, mm -hmm. and I think there is a greater need for us to talk like uh, two women like you so that other women that are watching this can also find themselves and find their struggle to say oh oh you know and there is a thing called um, the boys club and, and and there is a way that despite that that would have happened um, early in your career but you still became who you are today which okay. which in itself is 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 a phenomenal thing so now you you finish your articles and 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 you part ways with them where, where then do you go I started my own practice straight after articles. immediately after articles I started my own practice I had I had lots of doubts let me not lie to you I kept thinking <laughs> oh my goodness can I do this can I do this but I must tell you I I could have never asked for better parents my parents have always been phenomenal yeah they um, they encouraged me my father went out of his way to get me clients he was saying I'll be your marketing manager do this <laughs> I'm telling you, my mother gave me her bonus. I set up my office. I paid oh for all my bills. All right, my so we're going to talk were... about starting a business <laughs> and, and how that's like, yes. you know, because surely mm. there's a lot of lessons we can take from that. We back Thank up you. for this. <laughs> know your rights. Know the law. The Law Report with Michael Matuening Bill. I'm still in conversation um, with Mamadou Masala, an attorney and uh, a phenomenal woman who's had a very long and broad career occupying various uh, seats of le leadership, which she still does today. Um, and I'm afraid we can't take your calls, but the good news is we are streaming live, so you can uh, watch us live. You can also uh, catch this at any time at, at your leisure by going to Kaya TV, uh, and you can watch this interview as many times as you need to. Before we took a break, we were talking about you now, straight out of articles, starting your your law firm and, and i think and i think south africa is in dire need of more and more graduates starting businesses because i think i think the, le the lessons of studying a law firm apply equally to the lessons of studying any type of business correct so what were some of the 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 challenges and your experiences starting a business particularly at that age and 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 your learnings i suppose okay i think the biggest problem which remains a problem to this day for SMEs, access to funding right and uh, before we went to the break i actually said my mother had to give me her po bonus and cash in some of her pension just to make my dream a reality because no financial institution will touch you you have these degrees and you think i've now will overcome the biggest hurdle i've got an education but you're still in the very same situation when you walk into a bank they see you as a risk so they won't give you any funding so for my first year of business, I obviously had to get uh, funding from my parents. But the other issues, obviously, ha making sure that people have enough confidence in you to allow you to represent them or to use your service as an attorney. Yes. But as I said, in, uh, my father and, obviously... And, and, and that, that's, that, that's probably, you know, the, what I would perceive to be the greater challenge mm -hmm. of, of here's a young girl, mm -hmm. as you would have been there. That's true. Asking to represent me in my in my very important case yes whether whether it's me and i'm you know me and my wife of 30 years or mm -hmm. me and my employer who's top gun mm -hmm. how how did you uh, you know sort of manage to persuade people that they can trust their lives uh, i mean they can trust you with their lives yes as i say um obviously the one big advantage was the fact that um I had my father as my marketing manager. So, right. I mean, he was my biggest advocate. And he called all his former students and said, now it's time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but be that as it may, obviously I had to stand on my own laurels at some yeah. point. Um, look, I, I knocked. I knocked on many, many, many doors. Yes. But I'd like to say that I had a very interesting twist. I knocked, one day I knocked on the door of a black woman. And I think it's important I acknowledge this lady. Her name is Omar Rasitaba. She's still Rasitaba's wife. Her name at the time was Omar Rabaji. She was the manager at the road accident fund. I remember I went into her office. She listened to me for 30 minutes. And she said to me, I will try you. I said, are you really sure you'll try me? <laughs> and she said, no, I will definitely give you a chance. Yeah. But because she didn't want to leave me to the wolves, yes. she then obviously twinned me up with somebody else who she believed had a lot of experience in that kind of work, right. which is your road accident fund work. Yes. But I was doing the defendant's work. Yes. And at that early age, I think she saw something in me for her to have that much confidence. We worked on one instruction. It was a success. 
then it moved to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. And then after that, we do, did road accident fund work for many years, and it was the principal client for my firm. So I actually started my, my, my business based on the trust that one black woman had in me. Wow, I, I almost clapped. But <laughs> and it's Women's Month, I think it's important to say that. Yes, uh, you know, I think... Um, uh, and I will never uh, ever forget what that woman did. Yeah, because had she not had faith in me, I wouldn't be sitting and, here. And where is she now? Um, she's actually an advocate at the bar now. Right. But she had faith in me. And this little girl, she didn't know from a bar of soap, yes. but she listened to me and she heard me. So, 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 so you know, so it's, it's sort of that break that most of us need where you just need somebody to believe in you, to say, yeah. I'm going to take a chance on you. But that's what I've always tried to replicate in everything else I've done since. Yes. That has had such a profound impact on me that each time, no matter which position I sit up in, I always look for a person with raw talent. Yes. And then I say, we take that talent, we, make, we transform it into a skill. So, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in the telecom sector. Yes. But the and number and of people I've that, brought in. Straight, yes. straight after, straight out, you know, so straight after this, I think you're around 20, 20, 25, 28. You then started working for uh, being a counselor, which is an equivalent of a board member. Correct, at 28. For, for, for ICASA. Correct. Um, and I've been in practice, I think, for about four or five years before then that's incredible so i think i think you've sort of had a lot of achievements at a young age correct but then you had a, 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 an opportunity to be the director general for the department of communications correct and 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 as i was reading and preparing i think i was 33 at the time yes yeah mm -hmm. and and your experiences there do not seem to be much different from your experiences at norton rose <laughs> Actually, they are not, because unfortunately, how can I, patriarchy, mm. to a large extent, doesn't know, go, be, goes beyond race, mm. because we live in a patriarchal society. Yes. And the unfortunate situation that I lived through at the Department of Communication has caused me to be stigmatized. And I think it's very unfair, because there was a male counterpart of mine who had a similar disagreement with his minister about the same time when I had mine. Yes. And but for I'm those sure, that don't know, maybe yes, just... Yes, let me... I mean, Jimmy Manyi, um, I'm sure everybody knows uh, Jimmy Manyi. I'm, I'm, he's in Zwanele Manyi now, I think. Um, equally had a similar unhappy situation with um, his minister. Mm. But for me to be heard, unlike him, for me to be heard, I actually had to go to court. Sure. And it's only at the doorsteps of court where I was heard. And, might I add, I was heard because of the contents of the affidavit that I had now put before court. Because I said, this is my story. Mr. President, please listen. Mm. And that's when the president intervened. The matter was settled out of court. And I was reinstated into the public service. And all I was begging for was to say, do not kill my career. Because had I stood by and allowed my dismissal to stand as it is, I'm an attorney. I would have had that on my record. Mm. And what would that say for my credibility going forward? Mm. My career would be over and done with. And I had worked many years, very hard. Even if I achieved many things as a young child. I mean, I hardly slept as a child. I worked and worked and worked. Yes. So there are sacrifices that go with that kind of success. Mm. But be that as it, as it may, I w we settled. Mm. But what also still irks me to this day, I was then asked to leave the department. I have not done anything wrong. Yes. I'm the one who now has to go into a new exile now. I'm so going it's, into it's, the NCC. Yeah. Not that I didn't enjoy it there. Yes. Eventually. So, so you, you say, hang on, I'm the victim here. Correct. Um, and this is the issues that I've been confronted with. Mm. And the solution is, okay, let's move the victim to, to a different setting. Correct. And I, and, I think, and, I, and I think I say you're a victim and I use this word because even when one looks at the, the report of the then public protector, mm -hmm. you seem to be vindicated insofar as issues of, of you know um uh, or uh, i suppose that public protector comes later yeah on. it comes on with the ncc right but maybe let me just fast track it but now let me just tell you i get stigmatized i'm kept in the public service mm -hmm. because the law says so yes but no one will touch me with a 10-foot pole is this now after, after i leave the doc so so, so we, you, you leave the doc i go to the and now put in the national consumer commission that's right that is to finish off the remainder of my contract because the law says I'm a public servant. Yes. You put me as a DG or in a similar position. So I go in and I become National Consumer Commissioner.
Right. Now I need. So, so the, 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 as a commissioner, you were not appointed to the full term that would normally be given to a commissioner. Correct. It was I was just, just finishing just off my DP contract. All right. That's the sad part. Yes. That's why then there were also court battles after that. But the interesting thing, on my first day, I am given a copy of the Consumer Protection Act and an office opposite the toilet. Create this institution. Hmm. I have a DG title, I have a DG salary, but I'm sitting in an office opposite the toilet. I then think, life is full of challenges, you need to make the best of it. So I then sit down, drop a business plan, create a structure from scratch, start the recruitment process. By the way, I'm not even given a budget. So the first advert I put out to get executive management for the Consumer Commission, which is your CFO, so that I can get a budget. For you to have a budget, you need to have a CFO, and I'm not given a budget. I had to take money out of my own pocket. No ways. Yes. <laughs> yes ways. But that's how determined I was. Yes. Because I was not going to allow anyone to relinquish me to that, oh, loud mouth who knows nothing, who cannot deliver. Right. So I thought, put me in a desert, it is fine. I will find water and I will deliver. I will create an oasis. And I'd like to think, in the two years or one and a half, one year, eight months that I had at the Consumer Commission, I made an impact. But, but, but I mean, we talk about uh, patriarchal society and I'm trying to just connect. Mm -hmm. So the issues that you would have experienced as the DG for communications, they're connected to the fact that you're female. Is mm -hmm. it the same reality that you, you then face under a different minister? I believe so. Because, you know, there's something that really hurt a lot. Mm -hmm. You are sitting in a job, you're doing your job. The next thing you find your job being advertised in the paper. Mm. The minister doesn't have the courtesy to contact me and say, this is what I'm planning on doing yeah. and this is the reason for doing it. I knew my contract is coming to an end, but I thought if I deliver, we can have a discussion and see if there can't be an extension. Because even in the DG contract, there was the option to extend. Yes. But clearly, this was not going to be given to me as an option. Reason, I think, to a large extent, when I was consumer commissioner, even there, I spoke my truth. And I believe to a large, to a large extent, maybe business was not happy about the truth I was speaking to. Mm. And I believe to this day, the Consumer Protection Act is a very important instrument to dealing with those issues of patriarchy and inequality, the divide between rich and poor. In fact, if you look at the objectives of the act, it deals with that. And I actively pursued that. And I think certain people were uncomfortable with the, with the, 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 the decisions I was making and the, 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 the way I was changing certain industries. I'm sure you remember my biggest uh, case that I ever dealt with there, the investigation against Auction Alliance. Yes, the Auction big, Alliance, big yes. scandal that we don't Correct. have. For those that would come now, they wouldn't know who's Auction Alliance. Correct. Because it's, it's it ended up closing down. Yes. A big auction house in Stellenbosch, which was not following due process. Yes. And at that time, when I did that, it shook the earth. Yes, yes. And if you remember, the tribunal tried to circumvent everything that I had said. But luckily, even though I was removed, the Estate Agency Affairs Board took it to the Constitutional Court. Yes. But now, people would think, I think somebody said, who does this girl think she is? Right. And if we leave her here, how much more is she going to do? You, you know, we're going to run out of time and, hmm. and, and I'm anxious to, to squeeze in this question. So you, 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 it appears that your career starts really, as it begins, you're faced with these challenges and all the way Correct. to the time that, that you're the, uh, the commissioner for Correct. the National Consumer Commission. And, and at and, the department as well. And, and I must say that from where I sit, it, it appears to me that you've somehow managed to conquer because despite the troubles that you've experienced, not only are you back in practice pursuing a very successful practice, but you also sit on a number of boards. Correct. What has made you, what keeps you standing? Why are you still standing and breathing? Why are you still, you know, what is, what is that thing that, that empowers you and strengthens you to still be here? I always stop and think that if I fall, what am I saying to that little girl who's coming down the road? Mm. If I fall, what am I saying to my niece? What am I saying to other women? Mm. That we cannot stand the challenge? And I believe by my going through these difficulties, I'm making somebody's journey a lot easier mm. along the way. And I think as women, we need to start thinking about this critically. It's not about me. It's about us. 
Because everything I do, every action I take, every fight I fight to win it, because you must fight to win, you don't fight to lose. Mm. Every fight you fight to win, it's a, it's a victory for other women mm-hmm. who are coming. So I'd like for 20 years or 30 years down the line, other young women must have it easier. Sure. They must not face the same challenges I've had to face. They must conquer, they must overcome. But what has been my biggest pillar is another woman, again, my mother. Yes. She has fought every single battle with me, every step of the way. So I also think as a woman, you must understand you're a multifaceted being. It's not only in the work environment, but even in the home front and socially. How you conduct yourself as a mother, as a sister, as a friend, that is critical mm. because that has an impact on how other and, women and, and, see And that, that is sort of something that is deserving of, of, a, of a lot more time and, and I wish we could get into it deeper because I think, it, you know, and I raise this with, with, with Justice Mohoro to say balancing your professional life, professional success and professional triumph mm-hmm. with, with triumph at home and balancing with your other responsibilities and roles. Mm-hmm. Um, um, how, how did you know what's in a, in, in a line or two what are some of the tips that you can give to to the young <laughs> the young entrepreneur the young businesswoman okay. look um, I've always had a deal with God yeah. I'm very religious in another way I've always had a deal with God I've always said God please give me everything yes. I don't want to have this and not have that so for me um, getting married was always on the cards and my, my friends will always tell you, in fact, they laughed at my wedding as they said she preempted it even before she met her husband. I knew when I was 22 that I'm going to get married. I just didn't know to who, but I was going to get married. But whether I'm a well-rounded um, human being, I aspire to it, but I don't think I'm 100% there. I think professionally, I give it 100 In fact, I give everything I do passion. I'm very passionate about what I do. But I think I'm a, I've, I've worked hard to be an attorney. I've worked hard to be a wife, and I've worked even harder to be a daughter. And I will continue to do so. And I think you always need the balance. Whether or not my husband will agree is a discussion for another day. Um, I think I forced my mother to confess that I'm a good daughter. <laughs> <laughs> She's already well, taken uh, down use, that road. Use the same mode as a parandi to, to, <laughs> to the husband, to I'll, <laughs> We'll have to get there soon. I'm afraid um, we, 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 okay. we have but very quickly run out of time. Okay. But, but thank you very much for, no, thank for you talking for to me. us. Um, uh, and thank you to you, the Afropolitan. That was... Uh, Amurubi Masala, and and remember, you can you can uh, catch this again and again because we're streaming live. Mm-hmm. Um, it's available on our podcast, and um, you can also catch it on Kaya TV. Uh, thank you very much once again. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. I thank hope I've made a difference in someone's life in I a small so. way. I, I I can <laughs> tell you now, you, you you certainly have. You okay. certainly have. Thank for you. For me, Michael Mutsoning Bill, I trust that it's been a a good show for you. I trust that you've been enlightened, and I look forward to engaging with you again next week. Good night. Stay tuned. Stay tuned tuned to Kaya FM for more.